We are on the doorstep of the Day of Judgment of Rosh Hashanah. In a couple days, the entire Jewish people, and frankly, all of humanity will be judged by the Almighty on that hallowed and sacred day of Rosh Hashanah. Of course, Jews worldwide will be listening to the shofar, dipping our apple in honey, wishing each other a happy and healthy, sweet new year. And of course, Rosh Hashanah is a two-day festival. And what I wanted to do in this special Rosh Hashanah edition of the podcast, what I wanted to do is to study something very interesting about what we do on Rosh Hashanah, namely the Torah readings that we do on day one and day two of Rosh Hashanah. Of course, every festival and every Shabbos and Mondays and Thursdays, we read from the Torah. And on Rosh Hashanah, day one, day two, we also read from the Torah. And as we do on Shabbos and on festivals, we also read the Haftorah, not from the Five Bucks of Moses, not from the Pentateuch, but from the rest of Tanakh, from the rest of Scripture. So we have four readings that we do over the first two days, or the only two days, really, over the two days of Rosh Hashanah. And what I wanted to do is study them because it is very interesting what was chosen to be read on the Day of Judgment, on the day where every person is brought before the Almighty and judged, and what is going to happen to them over the course of the next year is determined on the day that we blow the shofar, on the day that we gather together and begin the 10 days of repentance. It's very interesting to see what we study and what we read during the Torah reading. Now, another reason why this is a special edition of the podcast is because I'm not alone. I have a sidekick. Maybe let's correct that. I don't have a sidekick. I'm going to be a sidekick because together with us, together with me, to discuss this very important subject is my dear brother-in-law, Rabbi Shmuley Botnik. Hi, Rabbi Shmuley. How are you? Hello, Rabbi Yaakov. How are you? I am doing fabulous and splendid and terrific. Thank you so much for asking. Now, Rabbi Botnik is someone that I've mentioned on the podcast many times, and I know that the audience is pining. They're pining to hear from Rabbi Botnik, who is an exquisite person, a dear friend of mine. We're brothers alone. We married sisters. We actually spent a lot of time over the summer when I was in Canada. We spent a lot of time together, and we got to chat about a lot of matters of, of Torah, and he is also a rabbi, and also a lawyer, and an exquisite guy, and he's going to help us disentangle and figure out what's going on in these readings. Are you ready for this, Shmuley? I hope so. You hope so. Okay, so let me lay it out. Let me set the stage, and then you'll get us into the depths of this fascinating subject. So on day one of Rosh Hashanah, we read from Genesis chapter 21, and that is the story of the birth of Isaac... Abraham and Sarah are quite old. Sarah is barren, and a miracle happens. She has a child. That's Isaac. And Isaac has a brother who is problematic, and that's Ishmael. And Ishmael is a bad influence, and Ishmael is sent away. And Ishmael and Hagar are struggling in the desert, and eventually find water. And that is the bulk of the story of the first day's reading. The second day's reading from the Torah is from the following chapter, chapter 22 of Genesis, and that tells of the binding of Isaac. Isaac is a little bit older in chapter 22, and God tells Abraham, go take your son, your only son, your favorite son, take Isaac and bring him to Mount Moriah, offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham does it, and of course, we know the story. At the very last moment, as they say in Europe, in the 90th minute, the Almighty stops it, And Abraham supplants Isaac with a ram. And that reading ends. There is a little bit of a postscript, an addendum. There is a final last word that tells of the birth of Rebekah, of Rivka, of course, destined to be Isaac's spouse. So those are the two readings that we do on Rosh Hashanah, the Torah readings. And then there's the half Torah readings. The first day comes from Samuel 1. It tells a story of Samuel, the prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah, Hannah. She too was barren and she too bore a son. And that is, of course, Samuel. And that's day one 
the Haftorah reading, and day two, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, which is kind of talking about the destruction of the temple and the nation's descent into exile and Rachel's plea. Of course, Rachel's long dead. Rachel, the wife, one of the four wives of Jacob, is long dead by the time her descendants, the Jewish people, are heading into exile after the destruction of the first temple. But she makes an impassioned plea before the Almighty to spare the Jewish people on their trip, on their descent into exile. Those are the four readings that we do, and those are the four readings that we're going to discuss today. Now, Rabbi Botnick, did I do a good job describing just a brief overview of what the subject of these readings is? I think you did a great job, and I think it's time for us to do a deep dive into the inner meanings of what these Torah readings are all about and how they can teach us something about Rosh Hashanah. I'm excited. So let's start with the basics. I think the basic question is, what does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Of course, it talks about our antecedents. We read about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and what happened with Ishmael and the binding of Isaac and the birth of Rebekah and the nation's descent into exile and Rachel's impassioned plea and petition to God. Of course, this is talking about our antecedents the great patriots and matriarchs, so we are connected to the story, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with judgment. It doesn't mention Rosh Hashanah. So that's a basic question. And specifically, I think that it is unique in that the central protagonist or one of the central protagonists of all of these readings are some heroic women of our history. Of course, the first day's reading starts off with Sarah being barren, having a child, and Sarah sending Ishmael away. The second day's reading, it culminates, it ends, the punctuation is the birth of Rebecca. And the first day of Torah, it's all about Hannah, mother of Samuel. And the central character of the second day's Torah is, of course, Rachel, beseeching and imploring God to spare her children as they descend into exile in Babylon. So the basic question we have to ask is, what does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? And what is the role of these women in illuminating for us the deeper messages of the day? So hit me up. What do we got here, Rabbi Botnick? Well, I think a great starting point is the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, page 11. And the Gemara there tells us very clearly that there were three women who were barren and they all merited a miraculous salvation on Rosh Hashanah. So those three women are, lo and behold, the ones that you just mentioned. It was Sarah, Chana, and Rachel. So I think the very beginning of the answer to your question is the reason why we're reading about these three women in particular is because they merited their salvation on Rosh Hashanah. I think kind of the deeper question that you have to address is A, why did they merit it on Rosh Hashanah? And B, is there anything specific about Rosh Hashanah that relates to this kind of salvation, to this whole idea of going from infertile to a miraculous state of fertility is that somehow related to the theme of Rosh Hashanah? It certainly doesn't appear that way on a surface level. The question is, can we uh, delve a little deeper and find something that has to do with this whole idea? So this is fascinating. The Talmud tells us that there were three women who were barren, who were incapable of having children, Sarah and Rachel and Hannah and Hannah, of course, three of the women that are featured quite heavily in the readings of Rosh Hashanah, they were barren until a Rosh Hashanah came. And on the day of Rosh Hashanah, they emerged from this day as being fertile and capable of having children. And of course, the children that emerged, Sarah begot Isaac, Hannah begot Samuel, one of the greatest of our prophets, and Rachel begot Joseph, one of the heroes of the story of the Jewish people, of course, heavily featured in the end of the book of Genesis. 
and all that happened in Rosh Hashanah, and we read this story on Rosh Hashanah, but why? What's the connection? Oh, I'm so curious. Rabbi Bonnick, what is the connection between these women having their salvation, having their redemption, having their transformation, going from being infertile, from being barren, to being fertile and bearing these amazing children, that all happened in Rosh Hashanah, and we read the story in Rosh Hashanah. How intriguing, how interesting, what a curiosity. So what's the deeper meaning? Enlighten me. Oh, well, I can only try. Uh, I, I just have a couple of ideas about it, and uh, Rabbi Wilber, you are certainly welcome to offer any of your own. All of your listeners are certainly welcome to offer all of their own. But I was kind of trying to play around with this idea, and that is I want to take us back to the very first Rosh Hashanah in history. Pop quiz, Rabbi Wilby, do you know what that was and what went on then? Well, not only do I know that, I believe that all the listeners know that as well. Because this is something we've talked about many times in the podcasts. The first Rosh Hashanah was day six of creation, day one of creation, all the way back in Genesis. Of course, we're going to read in a couple of weeks. Now we're at the end of... Deuteronomy in a couple of weeks, we're going to have some chastar. We'll start again from Genesis. But of course, it starts with the seven days of creation. Day one, the Talmud tells us, is the 25th day of Elul. And day six, which is the final day of the active creation, because day seven, of course, is Shabbos, when the Almighty created rest, when the Almighty ceased to work, that was already afterwards after Adam was created, and after the whole story of chapters 2 and 3 in Genesis. So day 6 is Rosh Hashanah. Day 6 is the first day of Tishrei, and that is when Adam and Eve were created, and a lot of other things happened that day. Namely, they mated, they had children, they were warned not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge, good and bad, and they violated that, and of course, all of human history ensued from that event on the very first day, on the very first Rosh Hashanah, that is, on the very first Rosh Hashanah of history. Is that right? That is right. But really, it's it's a lot more than that, because when you study the more Kabbalistic works, when they try to explain what went on with that sin, with eating from the Tree of Knowledge, eating from the Itzadas, what you see is you're getting yourself into essentially an eternal study of complexity and depth as to what in the world went on there and what exactly was the meaning of their sin. So the the verses in scripture describe this snake that approached Chava, approached Eve, and had this very ambiguous kind of conversation with her. Ultimately, she, she succumbs to it, she eats from the fruit, and then she gives to her husband, Adam, to eat from the fruit as well. Okay. Um, the next thing you know, uh, a voice comes out from heaven. He says, did you eat? They say, they try to like worm out of it. And then they, they admit that they ate. And then God administers three punishments for each one of the three parties to the sin. So the, the serpent, the snake that approached Chava gets his punishment. That is that he will, uh, forever crawl, uh, crawl on the earth. He will lose the capacity to walk. Adam gets a punishment, you will forever have to toil for your bread. And Chava's punishment, Chava's punishment is, you will have difficulty bringing children into this world. And that punishment was administered, came down to this world and struck Chava on the very first Rosh Hashanah in history. So already we're beginning to see the seeds of how fertility and fertility-related ideas are very central to Rosh Hashanah and actually came to existence on the very first Rosh Hashanah in history. So Adam and Eve commit a sin, one that was enticed to them by the serpent. All that happened in Rosh Hashanah and the consequences thereof were administered in Rosh Hashanah as well. And Eve, of course, the first female in the story, she was told that she'll have a hard time having babies, like we mentioned, day one, before the sin. They mated and they bore children quite effortlessly. It was like a 3D printer, you know, just you put it in, it works, done. The Talmud, I believe, says, if I'm not mistaken, that 
two people went into bed and four people emerged. Twins were born right away. It was instantaneous almost. So that was all before the sin. And then Eve is told as a result, as a consequence of the sin, you're going to have a difficult time having children. And we could assume that, that all fertility-related issues and all childbearing issues, that's all part of the original punishment to Eve for the sin. And that happened in Rosh Hashanah. And isn't that interesting that on that same day, many centuries hence, three women who were previously infertile, who were previously barren, who were previously subject, so to speak, to the curse of Eve, they flipped it on its head, they fixed, I guess, what the problem was, and they emerged from Rosh Hashanah as fertile. I like where you're going with this, Rabbi Botnik. Well, we'll find out. Uh, this is just the beginning. You see, the, the Medrash Rabbah tells us that Chava Eve was given three very specific mitzvos, which can serve as the spiritual remedy for what went wrong by the sin of the tree of knowledge. Rabbi Wilby, take a guess. Can you guess what those three mitzvos that were given to Chava were? A making large donations to Torch. Was that one of them? <laughs> no, that's just like a super all-encompassing mitzvah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You tell me. All right. So the three unique mitzvos that were given to Chava and essentially given to all women throughout history, all Jewish women throughout history, are the three are the mitzvos Chala, Nida. And Hadlaka Saner. These are three really complicated areas in Halacha, and Rabbi Wobi's going to give you a brief and, and very eloquent explanation as to what they are. Okay, now, now I feel the pressure. Let me try. Chala, well, that is, of course, the colloquial name of the special Jewish bread that we bake for Shabbos. But the mitzvah of Chala is when you have a dough and Provided, of course, that there is sufficient amount of dough, you take a little piece of dough, the first piece of the dough, and you give it to the Kohen, and that is the mitzvah of, of challah. Now, Rabbi Botnik, you are a Kohen, and therefore, if we lived in temple times and we were neighbors, every time I would make a dough, I'd take a bit of the dough and give it to you because you would be my favorite Kohen. But today we don't have a temple, and therefore we have to kind of discard that little bit of challah dough in a respectful manner because we can't fulfill the mitzvah in its entirety. So the mitzvah of challah is to separate a part of the dough, to designate that, to give that to the Kohen, and then the rest of the dough is for you. Is that fair? Is that a fair description of challah? Yes, I think so. Okay, so that's challah. And then there's nida. Nida is the laws, the general laws of family purity, which govern the relationship of husband and wife when a woman is menstruating or even afterwards until she goes to the mikvah. So the Torah tells us that when a woman is a Nida, when she's menstruating, then she must separate from her husband. And after that period, literally, is over, she must go to the mikvah, immerse in the mikvah, after she comes with the mikvah, then those restrictions are removed. And that's the laws of Nita. And lighting the candle, Hadlaka Saner, is a reference to the lighting of the Shabbat candles. As we begin, or right before we begin Shabbos, we light the candles, the Shabbos candles. That is the mitzvah typically done by the woman of the house. And that is the third of this triality of this trio of mitzvos that you're telling me, and I'm totally surprised to hear this, that you're telling me the Midrash tells us that is the antidote. That is the rectification of Eve's sin. She's given these three specific mitzvos to remedy and to fix her sin, her transgression in the garden of consuming from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's right. So I want to touch briefly on what and how these three mitzvos can possibly serve as the remedy for what went wrong by the Eitz by the Tree of Knowledge. And to do that, we have to try just a little bit to understand the the depth of the spiritual harm, the this, this spiritual tragedy that occurred uh, when Eve ate from the Eitz and when she gave to her husband Adam to eat from the Eitz Okay. 
so what the uh, what the sources tell us is, and again, this is just a very very tiny, just you know barely scratching the surface description of what what the Zohar and other Kabbalistic works tells us, but the general idea is that this tree had the capacity to combine good and evil into a single, unseparable entity, indistinguishable entity. In other words, until Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, good and bad existed in the world, but as two entirely separate realities. The two never intertwined. As soon as they consumed uh, fruit from the Eitz Hadas, good and bad were now forged into a single and indistinguishable entity, which allows for anything and everything negative we've ever experienced to happen. Because if good and bad were always separate, so then all you had to do was keep yourself away from the bad. But now that good can encroach upon bad, the two can will always coexist, and you will always have to confront evil, and you will always have to contend with it, and that has been the challenge throughout all of history, and that came into existence through the eating from the tree of knowledge. That is kind of uh, just in, in a nutshell explanation of the the spiritual tragedy of the Eitzadats. So, so just let me understand this clearly. Before the sin, good and evil were completely separate. They were isolated. There were discrete entities that they never cross paths. And as a result of the sin of consumption of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, isn't that actually the name of the tree? Good and evil. There became a mixture, a commingling of good and bad. And now those two are almost layered into each other and they're almost inseparable. And it becomes much harder for us to see what's good, what's evil. Us, ourselves, humanity become a mashup of good and bad and being good and sticking to good and maintaining good and adopting good and preserving good now became maddeningly difficult because it's, it's, it's layered. It's, it's laced with bad as well. Is that right? That's correct. And the kind of the, the force that imposed this upon Eve, upon Chava, was this Nachash. We might, we might speak about him in more detail a little later, but this Nachash, this serpent, he was no ordinary snake. He was essentially the embodiment of all that was evil. He was existing as a separate entity from Adam and Eve. He was existing as a separate entity from good, but he wanted this. He wanted to encroach upon the powers of good, and he achieved this goal by inducing Chava to eat from the Eitz Hadas, to eat from the Tree of Knowledge. That's how he kind of got his got his in into the world of good that he so badly desired to be a part of. So this... Okay, this, wait, wait, I got to slow you down here. All right. The snake wanted a portion of the good. This is very advanced stuff here. You're saying that the snake coveted... Because the, the snake is the embodiment of all bad. So you're saying before the sin... All the bad was coalesced in this one serpent. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that is correct. And this snake, this serpent, craved, desired, yearned to have good or to be part of good or to be attached, to cleave to good. Is that right? So I I don't know if it's that he desired good or if it was that he wanted to impose himself on good and taint it and dilute it and kind of adopt it to his influence, which was evil. I'm not sure if it's that he actually desired to be part of them or he he wanted to overcome them. But regardless, the mission was to get humanity, which is Adam and Eve, to sin, and thereby, by dint of that, to enmesh good and bad together. And the result, the tally of day one, is Nachash Snake one, humanity zero. We lost the first battle. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So what, so what happens next? Now we, we understand, I guess, the, the architecture of the original sin of Adam and Eve capitulating to the seductions of the snake. Okay. What, what, so how does this all fit in? Go ahead. I'm listening. 
All right, so as we said before, Chava was given three unique mitzvos that served as a remedy to this sin. And they were Chala, Nida, and Hadlaka Saner, all three of which Rabbi Wilby just explained very eloquently. But if you look at the, if you kind of look at the structure of each one of these three mitzvos, you'll see a common theme. And that is each one is dividing, it's separating out the good from the bad or the spiritual from the mundane, right? So Rabbi Wilby explained how challah is separating out a piece of the dough and giving it to the Kohen, right? So you're taking out the, the part that's elevated and that's spiritual and you're dividing it from the mundane. Nida were the laws of when a woman designates a certain amount of time as being impure and then immersing in a mikvah and starting a new period of purity, uh, again, separating out the pure from the impure. And Hadlaka Saner is also when you light a candle announcing the coming of Shabbos, you're separating out the weekday from Shabbos, the spiritual from the mundane. So all three of them have this common idea of separating the pure from the impure, spiritual from the, from the mundane. All three of them are going directly against what the snake, what the Nachash wanted to happen and what Chava essentially succumbed to which was a commingling of the spiritual and the mundane, a commingling of the pure and the impure, each one of these three mitzvos remedies that by separating out what the, the spiritual entity from the non-spiritual entity. Wow, this is, this is so interesting. So what you're telling me, if I'm understanding correctly, is that absent these three mitzvos, we have a situation that reigned thanks to the sin, namely the commingling. So if we have a massive just bunch of dough together, that is actually a mixture of the Kohen's dough and the mundane dough. That's like the mixture of good and evil. And the mitzvah of challah is to restore it to the way it was before the sin, i.e. to take out, to separate out that bit of dough and designate it as a separate entity. That's the holy entity, whereas everything else is the mundane and thus restore it to the way it was before the sin. And similarly with the other mitzvahs, you know, there's the time of purity and there's time of impurity and absent the mitzvah, they're all mixed together. So big mishmash. And now they're separate with this mitzvah. Similarly, Shabbos, if you don't have a way to kind of symbolize the heralding of Shabbos with the candles, it just becomes, you know, Saturday, Friday goes into Shabbos and Saturday and Sunday. It's all just regular days. And you don't know there's one day that's really holy and sacred, and with this mitzvah of lighting the candles at the onset of Shabbos, the woman who does, who has the great privilege of doing this mitzvah is kind of restoring the world to the way it was before the sin by making clear dividing marks between the regular time, the mundane week, so to speak, the six days of work, and the one holy sacrosanct day of Shabbos. This is really interesting. Okay, so so where are we? We have, on the first Rosh Hashanah, we have a sin. A sin that led to a commingling of good and bad. And we're told what the remedy is. The remedy is these three specific mitzvos, which is the undoing of the commingling, the restoration of the separation of good and bad. And that is the antidote. How does this relate, so to speak, to the subject at hand, namely the reading that we do on Rosh Hashanah, and these women who had their fertility issues resolved on Rosh Hashanah. All right, so that's the next step. So you have to know a thing or two about Sarah. So right, let's look at that Torah reading first. That's the Torah reading, the primary Torah reading for day one is about God uh, miraculously blessing Sarah with fertility. So there's a story that doesn't get a lot of attention, Rabbi Wilby. Uh, I don't know if you've discussed it on your uh, podcasts, but it's a story in the Torah, in Parshas Lech Lecha, where Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt, right? Okay. Because there's a famine in Israel, they go down to Egypt. And Sarah, we're told, was a very beautiful woman. And the, uh, the, the servants of Pharaoh took note of that. And they said, we bet our boss, Pharaoh, would love to hang out with her. So they brought her to Pharaoh, and he really liked her, and he wanted to have some sort of relationship with her, and he could not. He just 
couldn't. However you understand that, the rabbis tell us that there was some sort of protective angel that kind of fended him off. But what you see from here is something very unique about Sarah, because God doesn't make those miracles for a person who doesn't want that miracle to happen. In other words, if Sarah merited to be able to fend off the, the ruler of the, the world at that time, he says, I want you here. I want to have a relationship with you. And she was so uh, resolute. She was so strong in her resolve to remain separate from Pharaoh, to remain dedicated to her mission as Abraham's wife, and never to co-mingle with an opposite force. That was Sarah. And she merited that miracle that she was able to remain separate from Pharaoh. And in fact, the Zohar says that when Sarah did that, when Sarah stood her ground and did not allow Pharaoh to touch her, with that, she started the process of the tikkun, of the remedy for the sin of Chava. So you wow. see, you see right here how Sarah kind of embodied this power to separate out the good from the bad, to hold the good in one entity and never let the bad, never let the evil encroach upon it. Wow, this is really interesting. So uh, can I say something just a little um, off script here? Mm-hmm. Doesn't the Talmud also say that what the snake, just back to the Garden of Eden story, the snake actually wanted to have intercourse with Eve. Almost like the bad and the good. It was almost like the, the, the bad is going to kind of inject its venom into Eve. That was what he wanted, or maybe he did it in some capacity. Because I believe the Gemara says that there was some sort of venom of the serpent that was kind of coursing throughout humanity as a result of the sin. So can't we say, and maybe this is what you're saying, that when Pharaoh propositioned Sarah, in effect, it was a reenactment of when the serpent came after Eve. The serpent came after Eve, and Eve capitulated. Pharaoh came after Sarah, and Sarah resisted. And thus, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, that the Zohar says, well, this is the beginning of the rectification, because it's almost take two. And this time, humanity triumphed. Yeah, that is correct. And it, it does say that the, the serpent had some sort of relationship. Hitel Zuhama is the, the term. Uh, he, yes. He managed to inject some sort of spiritual poison inside of Chava. And yes, I imagine that is what the Zohar means when it says that Chava served as a tikkun to that. Meaning Sarah, you mean? Sarah served that, as sorry, a tikkun. Sorry, Sarah served as a that Sarah served as a tikkun to Chava, right? Yes. Okay, so tell me more about Sarah and, and, and how it connects to the reading. So moving along, so what you see here is the idea that uh, Chava on the very first uh, Rosh Hashanah uh, succumbed, to, succumbed to this, uh, I don't know if the word is sin, but succumbed to this consequence, which is the, the commingling of good and bad, and that Sarah began the process of pulling the good away from the bad. Now, we also were told that these three mitzvot, Chalonida and Halakha Saner, are kind of the, the three mitzvot which embody that power. And we find, specifically about Sarah, that she had a very unique connection with those three mitzvot. Because we are taught that there were three miracles that always existed in Sarah's tent. Her bread was always fresh. Her candle that she lit on Erev Shabbos, in the coming of Shabbos, remained lit all week long. And a cloud hovered around her tent. Now, if you look at those three miracles, it's pretty clear to see that they correlate directly with these three mitzvahs. Because her candle remaining lit all week correlates directly to the mitzvah of Hadlaka Sener. Her bread remaining fresh correlates directly to the mitzvah of challah, and the cloud surrounding her tent is, I think, pretty clearly a demonstration of the purity that reigned within the tent of Sarah, uh, a result of her unique connection with the mitzvah of Nida. 
So you see how Sarah, both, you know, symb- symbolically and also in terms of her kind of her personality was that she had this ability to separate out the good from the bad, serving as a tikkun, as a remedy for what happened with Chava on that very fateful first Rosh Hashanah in history. So what you're saying here is that Eve made the sin, a very specific kind of sin, and then for hundreds of years, there was no one who was standing up and saying, I'm going to fix it, until Sarah, of course, together with Abraham, she came around and she said, I'm going to do it, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to remedy it, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what you did, I'm going to separate the good and the bad, I'm going to resist Pharaoh, I'm going to really embody and excel, be the paragon of these three mitzvahs that are the remedy for the sin, and consequently, she is something, or her story is something we should read about in Rosh Hashanah, but also the... I guess the, 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 the consequence, the, the punishment of fertility based issues, that is not going to be applied to her because she undid the sin. If you undo the sin, you undo the consequences. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. That's what I was going to get to. So the reason I think what I'm trying to suggest is the reason why we read the story of Sarah meriting to have children, meriting to undo the curse of infertility on Rosh Hashanah is because that is the power of Rosh Hashanah, on the very first Rosh Hashanah began the process of the commingling of good and evil. And subsequently, every single Rosh Hashanah, we have a chance to undo that. And the person who kind of got the ball rolling with undoing the commingling of good and evil was Sarah. So it's we read the story of Sarah having children on Rosh Hashanah because that's really what Rosh Hashanah is all about. It's about pulling the good away from the bad. Now, can we say that the continuation of the story is when Ishmael is a bad influence on Isaac and Abraham and Sarah disagree as to how to approach that? Abraham says, let's keep Ishmael here. And Sarah says, no, let's bounce him out of here. Let's evict him. Let's boot him. And God says, Sarah's right. So it's almost like Sarah is is really, she's the, the number one expert in the separation of good and bad. Abraham was willing to kind of tolerate Ishmael around, and he's not quite as distinct as Sarah relative to this question of removing the bad from the good, not allowing the bad to have any foothold in the same environs, in, in, the, in the proximity of good. I think that's excellent. I did not think of that myself, probably will be, but I... Totally. Okay, I guess I, I guess I contributed something to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am totally in agreement. I think that works perfectly. Yes. Okay. So so that explains to us exactly why we read this story on Rosh Hashanah because this is what Rosh Hashanah is all about. Let's fix what happened on the original Rosh Hashanah. Now, do you have a theory as to why? specifically on Rosh Hashanah, is when she was redeemed, is when the fertility was fixed? I mean, I think the idea is because that was the day that the curse was given, right? The curse of Be'etzef Teldibanim, you will have difficulty having children, was given on Rosh Hashanah. So it kind of only makes sense that the undoing of that curse should come to the fore on Rosh Hashanah. That makes sense. Let, let, let me speculate an idea. Tell me if you agree with this. The Almighty made a decree on Rosh Hashanah, number one, women are going to have a hard time, or all of Eve's descendants are going to have a hard time having children because of what Adam and Eve did. And every year in Rosh Hashanah that day, that question is revisited. Okay, let's look at this year's crop of women. Let's look at what happened, what they accomplished on this year. Let's revisit the question that was instituted on Rosh Hashanah, and it's revisited every Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, one year, Sarah, because she so exemplified this characteristic, Sarah, the Almighty says, okay, Sarah is the complete rectification of the sin of Eve and Adam. Therefore, henceforth, she will no longer suffer the ill effects of that sin. What do you say about that? You buying it? I think so. I think that works. I also speculated to you offline that there is, of course, a tradition that Messiah who's going to rebuild the temple and restore the Jewish people to their prominence, 
There's a tradition that he's going to be born on Tisha B'Av, the same day that the temple is destroyed. That's the same day that the Redeemer is born. That's the, the, the root, so to speak, of the ratification is on the same day that the downfall happened. So maybe it's a similar related idea. Okay, so, so it made sense. Let's go. Let's move on to the next reading. Well, so the next reading, but let's keep to day one. So the next reading on day one is the Haftorah. As you mentioned earlier, that's the story of uh, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. And it's a very similar story to Sarah, as you mentioned, that she also was barren and she prayed to, to God and she had a, a miracle, a miraculous salvation and became fertile and ultimately gave birth to Samuel. As we mentioned, the Talmud tells us that this happened on Rosh Hashanah. So the, the uh, Haftorah and the primary Torah reading flow directly. The question we're addressing is what that has to do with Rosh Hashanah. Here with Hannah, it's really easy because all you got to do, Rabbi Wilby, is look at her name, right? Look really closely at her name, Rabbi Wilby. Tell me what you see. What are the letters that spell? What are the Hebrew letters that spell it out? Well, isn't it... Uh, uh... A palindrome, H A N N A H, Hannah. Oh, is that, is that where you're going? Is that where you're going? I am not going there. You could if you want. <laughs> you can take the mic, Rabbi Wolby, and take it there if you want. But I was talking about the Hebrew spelling. Oh, wait, 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 wait. But maybe like a palindrome, you read it this way and you read it backwards. She kind of undid. I'm just totally, I know exactly what you want. I'm just trying to play with, I'm toying with you, you know, because this is our first <laughs> podcast together. I want to make you really comfortable around the mic. I'm going to do all kinds of little stitches there to get you off kilter. But yes, Chana is spelled with three letters, Ches, Nun, Hey, which are the first three letters of those three mitzvos, Chala, Nida, Adlakasaner, that you told me that is the elixir, that is the remedy, that is the antidote, that is the way to fix the sin of Eve. If she's called Hannah, it must mean that she embodied those qualities as well, and therefore she too, like Sarah before her, she too undid the effects of Eve's sin, and Rosh Hashanah, she became fertile again. That is correct, and Rabbi will be more than that. Uh, I think even more telling than that is if you read the Talmud, Tractate Brachos, I believe it's in the fifth chapter, it goes into detail describing what Hannah's tefillah was, what exactly her prayer to God was. And it says explicitly there that she said to God, and this is just so incredible. She said to God, God, I never violated these three mitzvot of you know, therefore, wow. give me a child. Yeah, check it out. So she's clearly evoking those three mitzvot. And according to kind of our whole theory here, it's because those three mitzvot undo the curse that was given to Chava and allow for the, the infertile to become fertile. Wow. So that was her petition. Her petition is, I fixed it. I shouldn't suffer the ill effects. Wow, this is amazing. Okay, let's move on to day two. All right, day two. Day two is a little trickier than day one. So, Rabbi Wobi, do you want to remind us what we read uh, just for the primary Torah reading before we get to the Torah on day two? Okay, so we have Genesis chapter 22. The Almighty tells Abraham, take Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, he takes Isaac along with two other lads, which Rashi tells us, I believe, Rashi tells us that's Eliezer and Ishmael, and uh, they go on the donkey and they travel for three days and they see the place from a great distance and Abraham takes Isaac, they ascend the mountain. Isaac says, wait a minute, we're missing something. We have all the paraphernalia for a sacrifice, but where is the animal? And Abraham tells him, you're it. And they continue walking nonetheless. Abraham erects the altar, he ties down Isaac, and at the very last moment, an angel comes from heaven, and they just tells him, stop, don't touch him, don't even make a small slit, I now know that you are indeed God-fearing. Abraham finds the ram that's entangled in the thicket, he takes that and puts it instead of his son Isaac, and they travel back, and I believe they go to Beersheba. And then, like we said, there's an addendum that says that after those events, they heard about their relatives being born. And eventually, we read about Rebecca being born, who is destined to be Isaac's mate. That's right, Robbie. But call me crazy. That last addendum 
always got to me on Rosh Hashanah. It always bothered me because this story of the Akeda is just so powerful, so powerfully emotional. It's such a highlight in our history. And I feel like it would have been perfect if the if we just would have ended it on that high. Like, he's about to slaughter his son. No, he's told not to. Slaughters a ram instead. And it's over. That would be perfect. Instead, we have this, like, downer. It's like, oh, and then uh, he was told that his brother had a bunch of kids, and one of them was Rebecca. And, like, that's literally how we end. <laughs> it's it's like the credits after, like, an amazing <laughs> scene. Like, you have, like, everyone just stips that, right? Don't give me the credits. Give me the punctuation. Give me the climax, and then you end it. You don't end it with the, you know, the, the epilogue. The epilogue seems to be such a different tone and tenor than the story itself. Exactly. And I want to submit that we got it all wrong. I think that it's that addendum, those final verses, they're the secret. They're the key. They're everything that this is all about. And here's what I want to suggest. I am listening. But it's really wild. Do your listeners like wild stuff? I told you, Shmuley, it's it's already 50 minutes into the recording. It's only the diehards left. So yes, (laughs) they can handle it. This is what I call this is what I call Star Trek Torah. Star Trek Torah. Because it's just like really cool. I'm listening. And that is the Medrash Talpios, early source, early commentary, tells us that Yitzchak, Isaac, was born with the soul of Chava. The soul what? of What? What? <laughs> what are you saying? Isaac was born with the soul of Eve? So I'm told. <laughs> Okay. I just work here. And don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) (laughs) Isaac was born with the soul of Eve, whatever that means. And he goes further and he says, when Abraham placed Isaac upon the altar and was about to slaughter him, that soul, that soul of Eve escaped from Isaac and entered into that ram that was caught in the bushes. What? What? Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, this is kind of, I never watched Star Trek, but I guess this is what it's all about. So, <laughs> so the, the soul of Eve was in Isaac, according to this Midrash. And then, right before the slaughtering of, um, of Isaac, but supplanting that with the ram, the soul left Isaac embedded itself in the ram and then the ram was slaughtered. Is that what you're telling me? That is what I'm telling you, but I'm telling you a little bit more than that. Because I want to suggest, and I haven't seen this, that when it says that the ram was ensnared in the bushes and Abraham extracted it, I want to suggest that that, those bushes are representative of those forces of evil that ensnared the soul of Chava, the soul of Eve, from way back when. From when the serpent attacked her, he took hold of her, and her soul remained entrapped in some sort of negative energy up until that moment. Up until that moment where Abraham was able to extract it from the bushes and offer it as a sacrifice. And at that moment... But wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't he tell me it was in the soul of, of Isaac? Didn't he tell me it was in Isaac, not in the ram? It was only went into the ram at the end. But that's right. It was in Isaac, went into the ram, but it was at that moment when he's about to sacrifice the ram that he was able to fully extract this the spiritual soul of Eve from any evil, uh, any negative... Uh, trappings that it was in. So w- what I mean to say is that even when it was inside of Yitzchak, it st- could be it still had some sort of negative influence. It was at this point that it was becoming entirely purified. So when the ram is entangled in the thicket, that is symbolic of the soul of Eve, which started off its story being completely good. It got entangled with bad and now was the process of actually fixing it, removing it from the entanglement, and offering it as a sacrifice, ascending it, so to speak, back to heaven, to be restored to its prominence as being good, completely free of any scintilla, of any alloys, of any contaminants of bad. But here's the thing, and here's where it gets even cooler, because you got to end this thought off with 
an Arizal. So the Arizal tells us that Rivka, Rebecca, who was born at that moment, is a reincarnation of Chava. What? What? Is this when the Star Trek goes off the rails? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just so beautiful. I think it's just perfect. It's like it literally goes from verse to verse. It's like the soul leaves Isaac, goes into the ram, gets slaughtered, goes up to heaven. And a second later, we're told Rebecca was born. Of course she's born. She's the reincarnation of Chava. That was the only time that she could possibly be born. And we read about this on Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Wolby, because Rosh Hashanah is the day when Chava sinned. So Rosh Hashanah is again the day when we're trying to remedy that sin. And this uh, this flows perfectly from day one. So in day one, we read about Sarah. We read about Chana, who lived with the message and the power of Chala Nidad Lakasaner, which serve as the remedy to the sin of Chava. Day two, we continue that theme, and we read about Abraham extracting the soul of Chava, the soul from the ram, extracting it from the thicket, and it ultimately returning to this world in its most purified sense in the body of Rebecca. So day two, wow. so far, is still on deck. It's still perfectly in line with the theme from day one. Wow, my, my brain is, is totally blasted. This is, this is so wild. This is so incredible. Unbelievable. My mind is blown. Let us bring this home. So we have three out of four makes total sense. There's a continuous theme from the first Rosh Hashanah to Sarah, to Hannah, to Rebecca, with all kinds of stations and junctures along the way. What about Jeremiah chapter 31? It's talking about the exile. There's no mention of Eve, of course. doesn't seem to relate to Rosh Hashanah. It does talk about another great Jewish woman, namely Rachel, and her petition to God to spare the Jewish people who are descending to Babylon in chains, what does that have to do with this entire edifice that you have built for us today? All right, so we're going to try. I think it has everything to do with it, and Rabbi Wobi, you tell me if, if you disagree. And that is, you won't see it in the verses, but you'll see it in Rashi. Because okay. Rashi points out something which really should hit all of us. Because when you read those verses... It's really strange. It's something's really bizarre because the verses are describing the Jews going into exile. And then Rachel in heaven, as you mentioned, she was long gone. Rachel in heaven pleading before God. And, and the term, it's very dramatic. It's, it's, she's praying with this bitter, bitter cry. And God says, Rachel, your children will one day return to the land of Israel. And the glaring question is, why on earth is Rachel the only one who's praying on behalf of the Jewish people? What happened to all the other people, all the, the, the three patriarchs, there's four matriarchs? Why weren't they praying on behalf of the Jewish people? I like that question. Okay. So Rashi addresses it, and Rashi tells us that they did. They tried. They tried to pray. Abraham tried to pray. Isaac, Jacob, they all tried to pray. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, they all tried to pray. But God wouldn't listen to them. The Jews are going into exile. This seemed like a done deal. But Rachel got up and she put forward the following argument, the following petition. Now, I don't know if you discussed this in your podcast, Rabbi Wilby, but there's a very profound story about Rachel. And that is that when, when Jacob met her and wanted to marry her, he was afraid that her father... Uh, who was known to be a fraudulent, scandalous kind of guy, would instead offer her older sister, Leah, right, instead of Rachel. Well, did you go through that story? with Yeah, yeah, we talk about that story as Parshas Vayetze. Jacob is fleeing from Esav. He goes to Laban. He uncorks the well, remember that story. He wants to marry Rachel. He promises seven years. Laban does the whole switcheroo. And supplants Leah instead of Rachel. And that was obviously a a trick, a deception, but one that apparently, according to Rashi at least, Jacob was concerned about. And he said, I want to marry Rachel Bitchaktana. Rachel, Rachel, your youngest daughter, don't give me Leah. But nevertheless, he ended up with Leah, which in the morning, she's Leah. 
And Laban says, well, no, that's the tradition. You have to marry the older one, then the, then the next one. Okay, just work for seven more years. Seven more years, and I'll give you Rachel as well, which Jacob does. And Jacob ends up being married to these two sisters, to Leah initially, and to Rachel. That's right. Well, but did you discuss the part about the secret codes where Jacob gave Rachel these codes where he, had te- he was hoping that she would – be able to, you know, I guess my image of it is like she would whisper the codes to Jacob and that way he would be able to ascertain whether or not it was Rachel or her sister. And Yeah, I believe you mentioned that. We mentioned that. He gave her a code and she revealed the code to Leah. Is that right? That's right. So she revealed it to Leah. And so here, Rashi tells us here, back in Jeremiah, that it was in that merit. It was in that merit that Rachel gave the codes over to her sister that God said, you know what, you did such an incredible thing. You you sacrificed, you know, everything. You you sacrificed your husband. You thought you were anyways. In that merit, I am going to take the, your children out of exile and bring them back to Israel. Okay, now here's the thing, Rebbe The Das Zekenim in Parshas Vayetze tells us what those codes were. Right? Now, my child... It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like password one, two, three. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly like what I What was the passcode? So the passcode says that Dasikanim was three very distinct, very unique words. Can you guess what they were? Uh, I don't know. You tell me. They were Chala, Nida, Hadlakas, Haner. Oh my. So that was the code. Okay. That was the code. The code, in other words, at what, I, what I think the Dasikanim is telling us is you got to think about this a little deeper. It wasn't just a code. He was giving over to her an, an entire philosophy. He was saying, this is what we are going to build the entire Jewish people with, with this power, with this force of the ability to say no to evil, to pull away from evil, and to create an entity, to create a nation that will be built on the, the fundamentals of only purity and only good. And, and wow. they will be able to hold out against all of the external forces. That's what Chalanida and Elokhazana represent, and that's what he gave to Rachel. So what he's telling her is that when we're getting married, the objective of our union is these three things, because they, more than anything else, symbolize the undoing of the original sin and, the again, the, the, the restoration of the world to the way it was, where good and evil are separate and distinct and not commingling. That was the essence of the message. It wasn't just a passcode. It was a philosophy. Exactly. And Rachel gave this to her sister Leah. She included her sister Leah in this philosophy. She allowed her in on the secret. And in that merit, God said, I will take your children out of exile. And I think if you think about that, it lines up perfectly. Because taking the Jewish people out of exile is exactly that. When we go into the exile under the jurisdiction and under the influence of the nations who hate us or the nations who want to influence us negatively, we are essentially going through what Eve went through. We're going through what Chava went through. We are a commingling of good and evil. And when God pulls us out of there and brings us back to Israel, that is a fulfillment of the message of Chala Nida Hadlakasaner. And that's why wow. we're re- that's why we're reading this story as like the grand finale. This is the final reading of the two days of Rosh Hashanah. Because here's where the message really hits home. This power of Chala Nida Hadlakasaner embodied by these three women, Sarah, Hannah, and Rachel, that power is what's ultimately going to bring us back to Israel, back to the temple, back to the days of Mashiach. Wow, this is absolutely incredible and amazing. So there's a complete consistency and a continuum between all four of these readings, going back to the original Rosh Hashanah. And can we also say that that's really our own individual mandate in Rosh Hashanah? Can't we say that as well? I think absolutely. I think that's why we're reading it, is we're trying to drive this message home, that on Rosh Hashanah, there's this special, it's a special time, because we're all, we all have these challenges. We all living, we're living through this. We're living through this commingling of good and evil where there's just so many influences coming from places that we really don't and shouldn't be associated with. 
And Rosh Hashanah is the time to pull away from it, to implement the powers of these three mitzvahs, embodied by these three women. And we could incorporate it into our lives. And I think that's really our mission. And it's the message of Rosh Hashanah. Or can we say also that just the, you know, the 10 days of repentance, which begin with Rosh Hashanah, the essence of repentance is the, the separation, uh, removing, so to speak, what we actually want to take with us in this upcoming year. What are the good things, the good qualities, the good behaviors, the good habits that I have that I want to perpetuate? And I want to separate that from all those sins and all the time that I wasted, all the bad things that I did that I regret. It's almost like the, the process of tshuva, of repentance itself, is almost precisely this, to disentangle the good from the bad that we all have within us, to go through this process outlined in the Torah reading and emerge, so to speak, from these 10 days, from these 10 days of repentance with the good and the bad separate, the good I'm going to maintain and preserve and the bad I'm going to discard and remove, excise from myself and and you know, on an individual, personal level, to do what these great women did and what the mission statement of of our people is, to undo on a personal level what Adam and Eve wrought upon humanity with their original sin. On the original Rosh Hashanah, our mandate and our mission is to undo that every Rosh Hashanah again. That's right, Rabbi Wolby. I think I would like to just conclude, if you don't mind, with just just two quick gematrias, if you'll indulge me. I love it. I'm ready. Let's go. So we mentioned how uh, the verse describes very emotionally how Rachel prayed to God. Um, Look, I gave I gave away the the secret codes to my sister, and we and we described how the secret codes were chalanida lokasaner. But the term that the verse uses it was a bechi tamrurim. It was a bitter cry, and the word tamrurim bitter. Probably will be is exactly Gematria, Chala, Nida, Hadlakasaner. Wow. 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 8.96. 8.96. Rabbi Wolby, I want to say just one thing, and I think with this we'll end. And that is God responded, yes, I will take your children back. And we also, we daven every day to return to Israel. And the term we use is Velirushalayim Ircha. God, bring us back to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, your city. And I was saying these words, I think it was yesterday, and I realized that the word Yerushalayim Yercha, Jerusalem, your city, is exactly Gematria. Chala, Nida, Hadlakasaner. Wow. I feel like if we, if we made this recording tomorrow instead of today, you'd have like five more gematrias. <laughs> we have to do we have to do an updated version once you think of some more. Wow, this was absolutely incredible. This is incredible. I absolutely love it. Unbelievable. Well let's uh, let's 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 wrap it up. Let's wrap it up here. And I think the overarching takeaway is of course these selections were not chosen arbitrarily. They are deeply and intimately connected with the essence of Rosh Hashanah, of what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to restore, what we're trying to undo, kind of on a global scale, all the way back since the original Rosh Hashanah. Our great antecedents, our great patriarchs and matriarchs showed us the way this is what we have to do. Let's restore the good. Let it stand on its own, removed of any contaminants. That is the process of repentance, and that is what we're trying to accomplish on Rosh Hashanah. Any final words here, Rabbi Botnik? I, I just think it's it's striking how it's all – it's kind of disheartening for me and you, Rabbi Wilby, but why is it all in the hands of the woman? It's like they have this power. It's, it's in their hands. And I, I was actually thinking about this the other day, that when you, when you look at all of the exiles that we've been through – the ultimate redemption, it was always came through a woman. Have you ever noticed that, Rabbi Wolby? So, like, even in Mitzrayim, the, the, in Egypt, the Gemara tells us that it was in the merit of the women that we, we came, uh, that we ultimately, uh, were redeemed. And then we, we went through the exile of Babylonia and that, that transitioned into Persia, the, the exile in Persia, which we redeemed through Esther. And then through the Greek, uh, the, in, in Yavon, our redemption came through uh, Yehudis. So, I don't know. They seem to be much better at this than we are. 
Um, I don't know, Rabbi, well, if you could give me any words of encouragement on that. I'll have to talk it over with my wife to get her opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think but she'll I, help it's you a, out It's either. a good question. It's a good question. I'm sure you have an incredible, incredible approach. But we have to leave something for next year. It's it's kind of like uh, like you said earlier. you got to end on a cliffhanger. Exactly. So let, Maybe that's just... the question. Maybe that's the question we should ask. The question that we end off with, okay, well, why is this such a women-centric storyline? What about the men? That's a fair question. Let's let, let's let's just leave that uh, unanswered. Let the uh, the podcast audience uh, ruminate upon that. Well, uh, now, if uh, if they want to get in touch with you, is there an email that we could uh, give out? Uh, sure. Why don't you just um, my Gmail account is that's my last name is B O T N I C K Botnik, uh, followed by the letters S M. So S as in Sam, M as in Malka. That's my wife's name at gmail.com. So it's Botnik S M at gmail.com. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Robotnik, for joining this podcast. You did a stellar job. I'm worried now about not being the most talented podcaster son-in-law of the Florence <laughs> family. I think you're going to supplant me. My email address is rabbitwobachimba.com. If you enjoyed this format, if you enjoyed the incredible insights of Rabbi Botnik, send me an email. We'll invite him back. Maybe we'll give him his own show. What do you say about that? But regardless, thank you so much for my partner. Everyone who's listening, may you all be blessed with a Shana with a happy, healthy, sweet new year. May it be a year of boundless blessing and goodness for the entire Jewish people, for everyone we know, for our families, for your families, for the entire Jewish nation. Shana Tova to all.